Well, I want to encourage you to turn this morning to Hebrews uh, chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 5 through 7, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 5 uh, through verse 7. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. And shall we pray? Father, again, we just would honor you and praise you and thank you for the uh, assembly of the saints and that we can come this day, the first day of the, of the week, and, and praise you and worship you and fellowship with one another. Thank you for this precious opportunity and privilege that you are pleased to give us. And these moments, I, I would pray for the, the help of your Holy Spirit in ministering your word to those who you've been pleased to bring this day. And I, I thank you that you are a God who is mighty, who knows the hearts of all men and women. So I do pray that by your Spirit's work, you would give us insight, you would give us understanding. The consideration would be truly um, good for our souls as it emanates from this revelation that you have been pleased to give us. I I pray it would be instructive to our thinking process, and I, I pray it would build us up in the most holy faith that was once delivered to the saints. So continue to bless our time together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still in this uh, particular section, <clears throat> excuse me, this particular section of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, uh, where the, the theme is the superiority of Christ over angels. The superiority of Christ over angels. And... Um, We've made the point that the author um, makes his point by means of seven quotations from the Old Testament. And this has the effect, I I believe, it has the effect uh, and and power of making it authoritative um, because it's coming from an authoritative source. And not only that, because it's repetitious. It's one quote after another. We believe, of course, in the inspiration of Holy Scripture. This is where God brings out his will to mankind. And it shows, it shows us how important this theme is of the superiority, uh, superiority of Christ in, in general. We can uh, occupy our minds with many things, as you know, that are not clearly revealed in Scripture. But the supremacy of Christ in all of its dimensions and expressions is really at the heart of biblical Christianity. Uh, so you can be assured that uh, when you're studying or contemplating uh, any facet of our Lord's being, his person, his work, that, that's pleasing to the being of God. Uh, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said, Surely Christ is an object sufficient for the satisfaction of the Father. Surely then, Christ is an object sufficient for the satisfaction of any soul. 
And the Puritan John Owen added um, that for the begetting, increasing, and strengthening of faith, it's useful to have important fundamental truths confirmed by many testimonies of Scripture. That is, if something is revealed over and over in Scripture, we can make the conclusion or draw the conclusion, this must be extremely important and something that we need to know and for the good of our souls. And relatedly, Owen made the point that every testimony hath some sing- something single in it and peculiar unto it, which is to say that if there are themes revealed throughout the scripture in different ways. It just sort of it, it, it deepens and enriches our understanding of whatever particular theme it is. So here, uh, the author does not simply say Christ is superior to angels and, and leave it at that, but there's one quotation after another of the Old Testament to make the point. So last time we looked at, at verse 5, where the author cited for this, this purpose. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, and 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. And and we indicated that these were both um, familiar messianic texts to the original readers. And then now in verse 6, the the primary quote is, I believe, and we'll talk more about this, from Psalm chapter 9 and verse 7. William Lane pointed out that verse 5 makes the point of our Lord's preeminence over angels by statements concerning his sonship. Verse 6 makes the point by... Uh, makes a point by pointing out that angels worship him. So angels, uh, which are powerful and resplendent, glorious creatures, worship God. So this morning, my my hope is uh, for the good of our our souls, uh, the force of this reality, that is the supremacy of Christ over angels, the force of that reality will be deepened in our own hearts by means of uh, two basic considerations. First of all, I want you to think with me about the preeminence of the Son as the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The preeminence of the Son as the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And here we're especially picking up on this term firstborn that occurs at the first part of the verse, verse 6, when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Um, and here our Lord is presented as the, the firstborn. It kind of resumes, at least to some extent, the thought in verse 2 that speaks of him being made the heir of the world. So under this first heading, we'll move in two directions of thought. First, some Old Testament background. Um, now, the, the fundamental Old Testament quote in this particular verse is, and let all the angels of God worship him. And we'll get to that under the second heading. But the first part of the verse says, and, and when... He again brings the firstborn into the world. That's, that's a clear allusion to Psalm 89.27. A clear allusion to Psalm 89.27. It's another reference that draws our attention to the Davidic covenant. You recall the words of verse 5. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, 14, which is a part of the covenant that God initiated with David. And last time uh, we observed um, some of the language had a temporal application um, to the times of David and the, and the succeeding earthly kings that followed him. But some of the language is transcendent. In 2 Samuel 7, 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16 of that chapter, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So, so clearly these are transcendent and messianic verses. They, they look ahead to a descendant of David who would occupy the throne forever. And, and the title of Psalm 89 in the Bible that I employ is the Lord's covenant with David and Israel's affliction. So we're, we're, we're trafficking here in the same category of thought as in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
Um, verse 3 of Psalm 89 clearly makes the point, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. Then verse 4, it, it, it's like 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you see this, this transcendent language, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And let me just read to you from Psalm 8, verses 27 to 29, and verse 27 is, is where the reference is, I believe, to the first part of our text. This is uh, Psalm 89, beginning in verse 27. I shall also make him my firstborn, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. So we have emphasis here on the firstborn. And we also see, again, this transcendent language that extends beyond the temporary time frame of David's life. Uh, firstborn, William Lane writes, firstborn, it's a title of, of honor expressing priority and rank. Title of honor expressing priority and rank. And this is verified in Psalm 89, 27, where it says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's priority and rank, the highest of the kings of the earth. Then verse 29 speaks about his throne as the days of heavens, as the days of the heavens. And then one, excuse me, one author put it, just as the son fulfilled the messianic promises, Psalm 2, 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, so he fulfills the pledge, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. So, so the background of this term is a messianic king that would rule and reign forever and ever. Secondly, just a little bit about the New Testament usage of this particular title. Um, the lexicon that I employ indicates it's uh, applied to the person of Christ figuratively eight times in the New Testament. We'll look at just three of those instances. In Colossians 1.15, it's a very similar import to our text. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And one author puts it like this. It would be wrong to think in physical terms here as if Paul were asserting that the Son had a physical origin or was somehow created rather than existing eternally as the Son with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. What Paul had in mind was the rights and privileges of a firstborn son, especially the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling sovereignty. This is how the expression is used of David. Psalm eighty nine twenty seven. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And then we have uh, passages in the New Testament where it's, it's connected with the idea of being the firstborn of the dead. A couple of, of texts, Colossians 1.18, he is also the body, excuse, excuse me, he is also head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And here we see this, uh, this close connection between firstborn and a place of priority and rank. Uh, Peter O'Brien writes, since he is the firstborn from the dead, he's founder of a new humanity. The resurrection age has burst forth. And as the first who has risen from among those who have fallen asleep, he's the first fruits who guarantees the future resurrection of others. So his resurrection guarantees a certain resurrection of all of his people, all who have, are in union with the person of Christ, all who have been baptized into the mystical body of the being of Christ. And another example here from Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. 
from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, a connection. Firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, priority and honor. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, he's made us to be a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So here you see the same kind of honor and authority that's applied to him as a firstborn, in second, as it is in Second Samuel 7, as it is in Psalm chapter 89. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him be glory forever and ever. And also we see here, that he is our redeemer and he has released us from our sins by his blood. So in the first place, we see the preeminence of the son as the, the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the firstborn. And then secondly, the preeminence of the son as the object of angelic worship. The preeminence of the son as the object of angelic worship. And let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, there's at least uh, two considerations that make um, the interpretation of this part of the verse a bit challenging. At least I found that to be the case. Uh, the first has to do with the relationship of the word again to the rest of the verse. Uh, the question is, should it be taken with the verb brings, as the New American Standard translation is, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world and says, let all the angels of God worship him? If that's the case, F.F. Bruce says, and when he brings the firstborn into the world a second time, uh, William Lane, so that it would refer to his second entrance into the world. So should it be taken, should the word again be taken with this verb brings, or should it be taken as a, as a connective that's just adding another quotation, which is reflected in the ESV translation. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So not to belabor the point here, I, I believe that it's a connective introducing another quotation. Uh, in the immediate context would support that. Notice in verse 5 it says, and again, I will be a father to him. And, and so it makes most sense to me that it's a connective just adding another quotation. <clears throat> Excuse me, then second um, question of interpretation is what text in the Old Testament is being referred to here? And I wasn't really sure if I should say too much about this, because have you ever heard that phrase, opening a can of worms? You know, I'm not sure if I'm doing that, um, but I'm going to put a lid on it in about three minutes if I do. So, um, But I believe this is a quote from Psalm 97 and verse 7. The, the reference Bible that I have, it has Psalm 97 and verse 7 as the reference. But there are other Bibles who... Um, quote, or excuse me, note, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 43, which is the last verse of the Song of Moses. Um, <clears throat> but if you look up Deuteronomy 32, 43, at least in the English Bible that I use, New American Standard, it's a translation of the original Hebrew text, you will not find anything that resembles this quote in that passage. That is, and let all the angels of God worship him. You don't see that at all in Deuteronomy 32, 43, in the New American Standard Translation. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. So you don't see anything that resembles this particular verse, the text that's found in our verse, unless you have an ESV. And then you'll see the phrase, bow down to him, all gods. And then there'll be a note that indicates that instead of the traditional Hebrew text, 
here that the Dead Sea Scrolls and Septuagint variants were followed. The discussion here gets a bit complex, um, and most modern commentators expect, accept this as the reference in the Septuagint, um, Deuteronomy 32, 43, and it's true that the New Testament does quote the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, on many occasions. But let me say, in a nutshell, I, I felt more comfortable with those translations that follow the traditional Hebrew text at this particular point, and, and this quote is not found there. I, I think I just got off on a wrong track when I went to this, the text, and I just didn't see it anywhere. And so I tried to do, the, all the commentators talk about this, and I just, I didn't feel the arguments compelling so I went to my good friend John Owen, and he says, because indeed there are no such words in the original text, nor anything spoken that might give occasion to the sense expressed in them, but the whole verse is inserted in the Greek version quite beside the scope of the place. So I just, I'm going with Owen, and uh, Psalm 97 and verse 7, I think, is the right reference here, so I'm, I'm going with that, and it's good when you have Calvin and Owen on your side of these kind of things. So being persuaded that uh, the author here um, is quoting from Psalm 97 and verse 7. I want to develop our thinking by means of two questions or so. Number one, and this is another kind of interpretive thought, but to whom does the words gods apply in Psalm 97 7? Let me read that verse to you. And the question is, to whom does the word gods apply? Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. That's, that's what's being quoted, I think, in our text. Worship him, all you gods. What does the term gods refer to? Well, it's the, it's the Hebrew term Elohim. And if you want to do a word study that takes 40 years, it occurs 2,602 times, according to my Bible Wars program. Um, it can refer to God the Father, to gods with a little g, to judges, to rulers, or to angels. And uh, in, in more than once, it's, it's used of angels in the book of Job, where they're called sons of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. John Calvin wrote, the Hebrew word rendered angels as Elohim, gods. But there is no doubt but that the prophet speaks of angels. For the meaning is that there is no power so high, but it must be in subjection to the authority of this king whose advent was to call joy to the whole world. Second question is, is when does this worshiping of the angels take place? At what point in time is this going to take place? Our text reads, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. What, what point in time is that referring to? <coughs> Excuse me. And part of, a, part, of the, part of what helps us to understand this is the, the import of the term world. William Lane wrote, world customarily signifies habitable land in contrast to the arid uninhabitable desert in a derivative sense it comes to mean the world inhabited by men consequently the majority of interpreters have identified the entrance of the sun into the world at his incarnation or his parousia that is they identify it as as the birth of christ or the return of the person of christ the puritan thomas goodwin understood it this way it's interesting uh, john owen uh, John Owen really took it in a comprehensive sense. Um, <clears throat> now, it was not any one special act or any one particular day that was designed in that and the like promise, but it's, it's the whole work of God in bringing forth the Messiah by his conception, nativity, unction with the, whole, with the Spirit, resurrection, sending of the Holy Ghost, and preaching of the gospel, which is the subject of these promises. This is a, an attractive line of thought, taking it more comprehensively, because um, we have adore, adoring angels in connection with our Lord's birth in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11 for today in the city of David. 
There was born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel, appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then we have angelic accompaniment with the return of the person of Christ in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. For the Lord is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angels with, uh, and, and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. So what, what I did at this particular point was employed a hermeneutical principle that I found helpful. It's called flipping a coin. Uh, heads, John Owen. Tails, Thomas Goodwin. But uh, then you're good either way. But, but actually, there, there is a, another uh, direction of thought that I, I found persuasive. And that I, I believe world here refers to the heavenly realm following the ascension of the person of Christ. The, the term world, I, this, is my, this is my take, it refers to the, 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 the dimension where Christ is after his ascension, his exaltation to the right hand of the Most High. Um, th- this is prominent in the, in the immediate context in verse 3 of chapter 1. When he had made purification of sins, he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. It's also in, in immediate proximity to the context of the text being quoted in Psalm 97 and verse 7. Verse 7 of Psalm 97 says, Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship God, all you his gods. Then verse 9 says, For thou art the Lord most high over all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. And then the sight that, um, that, that the apostle John gained into heaven of Jesus after his ascension. It was very helpful to, again, to my own thinking process. This is, from, this is what John saw, according to Revelation chapter 5. He says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So this is a a clear, unmistakable time when thousands and myriads of angels, they are worshipping the Lamb. They are worshipping the person of Christ. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Um, and, and this is after the cross. This is after our Lord's work on the cross because he's the, the lamb that was slain. He was always worthy to be worshipped and praised and adored. Um, but, but because of his redemptive, redemptive accomplishment in behalf of all the people whom the Father had given him, the, this seems to kind of ignite the adoration of the angels. So they're, they're worshipping him as the lamb that was slain. Now what that means for you and I is it's right to worship Christ. It is right for you and I to worship and praise the being of Christ. It's always right to worship Christ because he is the beloved son in whom the father was well pleased. It's commensurate with the work of the Holy Spirit, which is to glorify the son. It's always right to worship the person of Christ. But I think I can add our praise and our worship, in in a sense, should be more compelling than angels because we're the ones he purchased. 
He's the lamb slain. We're the ones that he suffered for. So it's compelling for us to worship him after his ascension, his exaltation, because he is at the right hand of the father as the lamb slain. It's personal. He purchased us and delivered us from the wrath to come. And then thirdly, how should we respond? Um, this is kind of the same, saying the same thing in a different way. Um, we, like the angels, should worship him because of his own abiding, incomparable, intrinsic glory. We, we should worship him because of who he is in and of himself. Thomas Goodwin says, Here it cometh to pass that our Savior Christ is to be worshipped. For you see, he hath that glory that no creature hath. Take him as he is, man sitting at God's right hand. He is to be worshipped, which no creature is. So the, the angels worship him. We should follow their example. We should worship him and praise him because of the inherent excellence of his person. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In John twelve thirty one, this is applied, this adoration is applied to the person of Christ. It says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. It's applied to the person of Christ. Leon Morris wrote, Jesus, John, excuse me, John sees in the words of the prophet primarily a reference to the glory of Christ. Isaiah spoke these things because he saw his glory. The words of Isaiah 6, 3 refer to the glory of Yahweh, but John puts no hard, fast and distinct distinction between the two. To him, it is plain that Isaiah had in mind the glory revealed in Christ. One Puritan said about the angels, with infinite delight, they welcomed him into heaven. With infinite delight, the angels received the person of Christ into heaven. So they praised and worshiped and adored him. And what I'm arguing for is that you and I should be like the angels. We should praise and worship and adore the lamb that was slain in our behalf. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for the time together, and I pray that the effects of considering these words would be honoring to thee and truly a tonic to our own soul and a motivation to increase our own delight and the worship and the praise and the adoration of your Son, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of all creation, the one who will rule forever and ever and ever. Pray that you would increase our own trust in him and delight in him and confidence in him and adoration of him, and might that uh, redound to thy glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.